Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. This is the fifth installment in the Why Bitcoin Now series, which takes a closer look at Bitcoin in the context of larger macroeconomic forces, such as the pandemic and geopolitical moves happening in crypto. My guest for today is Saifuddin Amus, an economist and the author of The Bitcoin Standard, the decentralized alternative to central banking. Welcome, Saifuddin. Thank you very much for having me, Laura. It's a pleasure. You're an economist and you now specialize in Bitcoin, and the Bitcoin standard has been translated into 20 languages, making it one of the more well-known books about Bitcoin. Tell us about your background and how you got into Bitcoin. Well, I was a uh, university professor in economics um, at the Lebanese American University, and I, um, I was always interested in uh, monetary economics and in particular in uh, the Austrian School of Economics, which is... Um, uh, focuses on uh, understanding the monetary um, the monetary differences between hard money and uh, easy money and the economic implications of monetary policy and inflationary monetary policy. So um, Bitcoin was a natural fit for these kinds of interests. Um, and so I was quite curious about it when I first heard about it. And even though I was pretty skeptical for quite a while, Eventually, I came around to thinking that, yeah, this thing is interesting and it might have legs. And what are the basic tenets of the Austrian School of Economics? And why do you think that Bitcoin is a natural fit for someone interested in that? The fundamental idea on which uh, Austrian economics is built and the way that it differentiates itself from uh, other schools of economics is the foundational principle, which is that value is subjective. And from the fact that value is subjective, um, you know, um, the, 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 I, I would say a, a fundamental difference is in the understanding that economic calculation takes place in individuals' minds and that, it, um, and that it's not possible for central planners to impose uh, preferences on market participants in a way that improves the well-being of the market participants. And so... Um, the understanding of subjective value, the understanding of the importance of economic freedom for markets to function, the ability of people to trade with one another, makes the Austrian school more uh, receptive to free market ideas. Now, particularly when it comes to money, I think the Austrian school is uh, specifically, um, I, I would say, the best school for understanding Bitcoin because it is the only school in whose worldview Bitcoin is possible, in whose worldview Bitcoin can actually work. 
And that's for two reasons, because uh, every other school of thought um, tacitly or explicitly accepts the um, accepts the idea that money is a creation of the state, that money is whatever the government says it is. Money is whatever the government uses for tax collection and government can make anything into money by just uh, putting its imprint on it. This is predominantly accepted, I would say, well, by um, most uh, schools of economics uh, today. Whereas from the Austrian perspective, uh, money is whatever the market says it is. And it is governments who had to make their golds, uh, their coins out of gold um, because the market chose gold. Governments would have rather made it out of uh, something else. And so governments can um, interfere in the market uh, for money, but they can't really um, – Uh, they, they, they can't completely destroy the market for money. And the implications of their interference in it are uh, best understood from the Austrian perspective. So that's the first one, money uh, control. The second one is the fixed supply, um, Bitcoin. And that was what really draw me, drew me to it because before Bitcoin was invented, I, was, uh, I, I used to think, you know, I, I would pose this hypothetical question to other economists and I would ask them, If we had a form of money whose supply was fixed, why would that be a problem? And from all other perspectives and all other schools of thought, you know, there is some importance to the nominal quantity of money. The number of units of money that are out there matters. And the percentage by which the units of money grow every year also matters. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of different perspectives on how these numbers should be controlled and how they should change with time. But there's very little uh, debate of the fact that the money supply has to increase. In order for an economy to work, money supply has to continue to increase. And so um, from the Austrian perspective, there's a recognition that money is uh, uh, is a unique good whose entire quantity does not matter. Um, the, the, the number of monetary units does not matter. What matters is their purchasing power. So people don't prefer 10 yens to one U.S. dollar, they'll still rather take one U.S. dollar over 10 yens because the value of one U.S. dollar is more than uh, 10 yens. So it's not the number that you get of the units, it's the purchasing power. And if you think in that way, then there's no reason why a fixed um, supply monetary asset can't work as money. In fact, you would argue that this is better money. And that's essentially Uh, the argument of my book, this is the most advanced form of money we've ever invented precisely because it's something whose supply is completely resistant to inflation. Yeah, the first part of your book was really interesting because it dives deep into the origins of money and the purpose of money. Um, so why don't we maybe break some of those things down for people? You did go through some of the three main functions, store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. Why don't you just explain those and then we'll get into some of the other concepts and maybe also do um, cover some of the fun historical stories that you had about money. Sure. Um, I'd say the uh, key concept at the beginning part of my book where I uh, discuss uh, historical examples of money and how they um, lost their monetary status and how new ones came about, I make the contention that the most important metric for the success of a money or one of the most important perhaps is the uh, what I call the saleability across time or how well money is able to hold on to its value over time. And, uh, you know, you can, you can think of it as 
on the one hand, people always want to hold the money who that, that holds uh, value more over time. But on the other hand, there's also another force acting there, um, irrespective of what people choose to do, which is that uh, the monies that are harder, that hold on to their value better, will end up holding on to more value, whereas the other monies will lose value. And so the net effect will be more and more wealth will remain in the harder monies. And I think the argument I make, it's not an original point. It's something that is uh, that has been made for many years within the gold space. What I did was that I applied it to Bitcoin is the concept using a concept called stock to flow, which measures the existing stockpiles of a material or a monetary good and uh, divides it by the uh, new annual supply. So you would look at the total existing stockpile of copper or gold or silver, and you would divide it by the new annual production that was produced this year. And that will give you a ratio. Now, the unique thing about monetary metals is that they are metals whose stock to flow ratio is significantly higher than one. Uh, for all other commodities, for all other market commodities that uh, people accept and use uh, daily, um, for all kinds of various reasons, the stock to flow is always within the range of one. So if you think about something like oil, the entire supply of oil that is out there in storage all over the world today is probably somewhere around one year's production of oil. It's somewhere in that range. It might be 50% less. It might be 50% more. Uh, 200% more maybe maximum, but it's not that much because nobody stores oil. There's just not that much room for oil storage because people don't use oil to store it. They buy oil to burn it. And so because it is burned, the stockpile is always being uh, decimated. It's always burning away quite literally. And so the new flow is quite large compared to the stockpile. And so this makes oil terrible as a form of money because new production is quite significant compared to existing stockpiles. And so if someone were to use money or were to use oil as money, they would store value in it. It's quite trivial for oil um, producers to flood the market with a lot of oil, much larger than the existing stockpiles, and therefore effectively devalue the oil and take away the savings that the person had uh, put into oil. This doesn't happen with gold. And to a lesser extent, silver, because gold is effectively indestructible, uh, because gold does not decay, doesn't rust, it doesn't uh, ruin in any way, we've been accumulating gold over thousands and thousands of years. And the result of that is the total supply of gold that exists today is many multiples, all of the supply that we'll produce this year. In fact, the number is more like 60 or 70, which means effectively that every year the new every year every year the supply of gold is increasing by around one and a half to two percent every year, which means that gold is a much better monetary good. So it has a higher stock to flow, which means that the stockpile of existing gold is many multiples higher than the annual production. So this is why it's um, it's difficult for gold miners to. Uh, dump an enormous amount of gold on the market and devalue the gold. And that's what prevents uh, gold from uh, becoming an industrial metal. And so applying that framework to currencies across time, I think, is quite useful. So, for instance, if you look at places like prisons, they use cigarettes sometimes as money because there's no easy way to make cigarettes in prison. Uh, if you look at societies, for instance, there's the example of the Yap Island where 
they didn't have limestone on the island, but on a nearby island, there was limestone. So it was a big deal. And it was very difficult to get limestone from that island to this island. And so those limestones became money. And but they're difficult to get, but they're not that difficult to get. So over time, the supply for limestone started to increase. And there's a story about how the supply inflated. And eventually, the the, the uh, Yap Island, like all other islands in the world, uh, went on to uh, more advanced forms of money. And can you tell that story? Because I thought it was interesting. Yeah, there's a. Uh, it was a uh, best-selling book written in the 1950s, based on a true story, and then it was uh, turned into a movie. I think with uh, Burt Lancaster, and it's called uh, His Majesty O'Keefe. And apparently, it's a true story. Happened in the 1870s. Uh, an American Irish uh, sailor by the name of uh, O'Keefe uh, had been shipwrecked at the island, and he went to the island and he found that you know it was it was uh, an island that had an enormous amount of coconut, which he knew that he could. Uh, sell at a significant price and he found that their monetary system was just a bunch of limestones and they used large limestones because they'd been um, you know producing more and more limestone over time and getting it from the islands nearby and so he thought uh, after he was shipwrecked and he left the island he thought well i could buy all of the coconut um, that these people produce if I go and get them uh, large uh, amounts of limestone because that's uh, uh, that's their money and so he left the island. He went to, I think it was Hong Kong. He chartered a modern boat with uh, explosives. And so, you know, he could get enormous quantities of uh, limestone. And uh, he took a professional crew and dynamite and so on and went and extracted enormous quantities of limestone and then took them to the island and wanted to buy uh, the coconut with it. And then... Um, Basically, what happened was a uh, civil war broke out on the island because some of the island chiefs said, no, we can't accept his uh, uh, limestones. These are easy, cheap limestones that uh, didn't cost them a lot of effort. For us, it has to have been something that's very hard and very expensive. And they understood something that most economists don't understand. You know, the, 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 the uh, money is only useful if it's hard to make. If it's an easy thing to make, then it's not money. It's uh it's uh, it's uh, it's not going to do its job as money. It's going to lose its value. And that's effectively what happened. Once the limestones came to the island, uh, the, the, the price of the limestones collapsed and the entire economy of the uh, Yap Island collapsed. And a lot of their coconut was taken away from them. And all they had left were a whole bunch of useless limestones. Um, just like many countries today, people, uh, all that they have left are a whole bunch of useless uh, pieces of paper. Yeah. So this, you know, I asked you about the three functions. I think all of this explains the first one, store of value, um, mm-hmm. I guess a little bit also medium of exchange. But do you want to just briefly touch on those? And then we can talk a little bit more about um, some of the other concepts from the early p- parts of the book. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, th- th- these concepts are uh, quite uh, intertwined. I don't think they're uh, distinctive functions in as much as they are uh, descriptive properties of what money is. And so you necessarily have to be a medium of exchange if you're a store of value and, and vice versa. Uh, functionally speaking, you can't exchange something unless you store value in it to, into it. Um, I think the, 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 um, 
The interesting thing, which is the topic of the, uh, you know, developing the analysis of um, the use of Bitcoin for payments, which is what usually people refer to in, in terms of medium exchange. And that's going to be the topic of my next book, The Fiat Standard, which is the sequel uh, to The Bitcoin Standard. I've written most of it uh, so far. And um, in the Bitcoin standard, I focus on the uh, intertemporal saleability of money, the, the ability of money to hold on to its value across time. In the fiat standard, um, because I'm analyzing the fiat system and how it displaced gold and how Bitcoin could potentially displace it, I focus on um, interspatial uh, saleability. In other words, how much value do you lose uh, from your money as you try and spend it into longer distances? And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the, the further away you want to spend your money, the higher you have to pay transaction costs generally, as the case is with uh, national currencies. So if I wanted to exchange a dollar with the grocery store around the corner, then I could just hand them the dollar. And that costs me, uh, you know, a three second walk or 20 second walk or whatever. But if I wanted to buy something from uh, the town, from the next town, then, you know, I'm going to be needing to use the domestic payment uh, app. And then depending on which one, there's some kind of transaction cost. And if I'm going to another country, there's a uh, higher transaction cost because I'm going through banks and settlement institutions and so on. Um, so in, in, in a sense, I think the, the real power of Bitcoin, which I discussed in, in, in the next book, in the fiat standard, is in the fact that it allows, it has very high interspatial saleability across national borders. You send a transaction of Bitcoin, the, the Bitcoin transaction is completely distance uh, independent. And so, uh, you know, sending money from one of your wallets to the other wallet that's right next to it costs exactly as much uh, as sending that money halfway around the world. So that means, I think, in my mind, that Bitcoin is going to... Um, you know, uh, Bitcoin offers more of a value as uh, as for in terms of its on-chain transactions, it offers a lot of value for international settlements. And that's something, of course, I'd also discuss in the Bitcoin standard that it um, Bitcoin payment network is likely not going to be a network for individual uh, retail transactions, but more, uh, ra but rather for higher value transactions. Yeah, one thing about the um, spatial aspect that you mentioned is, I think, at least for now, I could see, so I could see that uh, um, point applying further in the future when we have greater adoption. But at the moment, you would need to find somebody in that faraway place who would be willing to accept your Bitcoin, <laughs> which at the moment, because global adoption is low, is um, you know a, a slightly a difficult thing to do. Well, yeah, I, I agree. Of course, uh, you do need somebody else, which is why, you know, Bitcoin's liquidity is limited uh, compared to fiat currencies. However, I think, you know, the, uh, the if you really think about it uh, over the last 12 years, uh, how far the liquidity has come. I mean, it's already much larger than the liquidity of many national currencies that have been around for decades and uh, countries that have been around for uh, millennia. Um, I think, you know, the Bitcoin market cap is much larger than the Egyptian currency's market cap. And Egypt's been around for a lot of time. So it's 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 astonishingly impressive in terms of the um, size of the market cap and the fact that it is internationally distributed means it's it's not an insignificant pool of liquidity. Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm not disagreeing with that. It's just I was more thinking that like even amongst my friends, I don't know if I could find anybody who would take money from me in Bitcoin. <laughs> 
<laughs> so in that regard, like it just feels like, yeah, I, but I, I obviously I agree with you in theory and, and down the line, I think that will be more the case. Um, but a couple other concepts that I want to cover before we dive even further into Bitcoin. Um, in your book, you are often talking about sound money. So how is that defined and why is that so important? The, the definition that I follow from the Austrian school based on the work of Professor Joe Salerno or based on the work of uh, Ludwig von Mises is sound money is money that is chosen and valued freely by the market. And unsound money is money whose acceptance and value is dictated uh, through uh, violent commands, essentially, or through government diktat. And so... Um, you know, if you need to pass laws that say people have to use your money or else, then that's not sound money. And for me, the astonishing thing about Bitcoin is that it achieved adoption as money without anybody passing a law for it to do it. And so this is really why, you know, I make the contention that here's the definition of sound money and Bitcoin fits the bill because, you know, you may not like it, you may not want to use it, uh, but there, all of this value is out there and people are using it and uh, um, uh, it, it works. It fulfills the functions of money for the people who um, use it for that. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's chosen freely on the market. Yeah. And you also call it commodity money in the book. And obviously, we all know the CFTC agrees that Bitcoin is a commodity. So um, <laughs> I do think that applies. Another um, concept that you talk about a lot in the book is time preference. What is time preference? And can you walk us through some examples of how that plays out with money? Yeah, time preference is in economics, it's the uh, degree to which an individual favors the present over the future. So if I were to give you the choice between $100 today and $100 one year from today, um, basically every rational human being will accept, will, will, would prefer to take the $100 today. If I wanted to make you wait for a year for the $100, I'm going to have to offer you a price um, through extra dollars. So I need to give you 105 or 120. Um, and that measure of how much extra uh, you discount the future in order to... Um, that measure is the measure of time preference. And it's perfectly rational that it, time preference is always positive. And the reason for that is that life is um, finite. We all die. We're uh, not immortal and life is uncertain. So you want to enjoy things as soon as possible because you never know if you're going to be there tomorrow. And also because, um, you know, your life is limited. Um, you want to have the things earlier so you get to experience them for longer. So people always prefer to have things early. People always have a, a positive time preference. However, the lower your time preference effectively means the more that you think about the future, the more that you um, provide for the future. So the more of a long-term oriented person you are, the lower your time preference, the lower the discount rate you place on the future. You would require a, a small amount in order to get you to uh, give up $100 today and uh, accept them in uh, a year. So for me, I think time preference is an enormously important concept uh, in, 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 in economics. In fact, I think it's the most important in, in concept in economics. When I used to teach at university, whatever class, whatever topic I was teaching in my 10 years at university, I'd always surprise my student with a lecture on time preference. I tell them, you know, if you're going to learn anything from this course, just remember this. It's the most important concept in economics. Because the degree to which you um, discount your future self 
in my mind, is the best predictor of the state of your future self. Um, because, um, and I say this in the book, you know, you, you'll conduct trades with other people, you'll work with other people, you're, you, you will have so many different um, interactions with others. And yes, other people can rip you off and other people can do bad things, but you will never have as many interactions with anybody as much as you will with your future self. You're always training with your future self. So when you decide that you're going to eat junk food, um, you know, you're, you're sacrificing tomorrow for the sake of enjoyment today. When a college student decides to uh, go party the day before their exam, uh, they're sacrificing their uh, future and their better grades for the sake of uh, a fun day today. So I think, you know, um, once this, this is one of those concepts, um, once you <laughs> once you learn it, it, it sticks with you and it's hard to unlearn it because you start seeing it everywhere. You start seeing it in your personal relationships. You start seeing it in your financial decisions. And once you just start looking at all of those things with that lens of me versus future me, you start really understanding where uh, present you comes from and you start seeing how your you know your your current problems of present you were caused by all of the hurdles and neglect uh, created by uh, past you and then you start applying that in all kinds of different manners and i think once once you're aware of it and you're able to see the distinction between applying uh, long-term and short-term thinking um, it, it, it's quite powerful. And I think um, a lot of people uh, enjoyed this concept in my book. And a lot of people told me that it really changed their life just um, by, by applying this lens of thinking. Anyways, how all of that relates to Bitcoin is that um, I, I contend in my book that time preference in society, well, I don't contend that. From the Austrian perspective, time preference is what determines interest rates. So what determines uh, the interest rates on the market is people's time preference. The lower people's time preference, the more they save. The more they save, the more savings are available on the market. The more savings are available on the market, the lower the interest rate. So in my mind, the opposite process is happening when governments are interfering in capital markets through inflation and through government uh, fiat money, which is easy money, which is increasing at at a larger supply. They... Uh, end the role of the interest rate as being a signal uh, as a market price and instead replace it with the interest rate as um, um, uh, something that is centrally planned. And that in turn affects everybody's time preference. So when suddenly your money is expected to lose value, you have less of an incentive to hold on to your money. And so you have less of an incentive to save and you have more of an incentive to spend. And on the flip side, because the government is able to create more money because that artificially lowers interest rates, so that gives you more of an incentive to borrow. And so this basically teaches society high time preference. It, 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 it reverses the lowering of time preference. And really, we, we have to understand that the process of civilization is effectively the process of human beings lowering their time preference. Human beings learning to think further and further into the future, learning to invest further and accumulating more and more capital, which leads to higher productivity. So when we start moving, and that's why throughout history, we're constantly moving to a harder money, which allows us to think further into the future and allows us to lower our time preference. Now we move to an easier money, and that process reverses, in my opinion. In my opinion, that starts making people think more and more about the short term. And you see it you see it in the differences in saving rates. In the 19th century, under the gold standard, people had much higher saving rates and there was far less indebtedness. And today, everybody and everything is in debt. All corporations and people and governments are up to their eyeballs in debt, basically. And that's just the way that people live. 
Uh, and nobody even thinks that savings is something that needs to be um, done. You know, you just uh, you, you're constantly racking up more debt and you work to pay off the debt rather than uh, spend from your savings. Well, so one thing that I wanted to ask about was, um, so did you read Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari? No. Oh, okay. Well, so there is a piece in there where he talks about how the creation of credit and um, and debt, people taking on debt, is what fueled growth. And, um, you know, in your – so in your book, you talk about how, you know, low time preference is what results in saving and less debt and, and ultimately, like, investment. Um, but I actually the, – so the way that Yuval Noah Harari uh, positions it, um, it's sort of like taking on the debt is also – um, a low time preference thing in the sense that, you know, like maybe you endure pain now to have this gain in the future. So is it always that low time preference results, you know, it causes people to save rather than take on debt or like, or maybe I'm just not thinking of it right, but somehow the way that he was describing it, it sort of seemed he was saying that when people do that, it's because they're thinking about, you know, investing in their future essentially by taking on that debt. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it's unsurprising he'd have these confusions because, after all, he is a Marxist anthropologist, so you shouldn't go to him for <laughs> but, his but, no, uh, but economic I just, insight. Just to be clear, that's my interpretation of what he was saying. He was talking about yeah. how credit no, leads I, to growth. I, I, and- a, a, a lot of people have asked me about this, and they share his stuff with me. And I've seen a couple of videos. Um, to be honest, I, I have no interest in reading what Marxists think about economics in general, so I'm not going to read it. But... Uh, I, I know enough to uh, pass judgment on it um, and readers are free to disagree. I think that the, the fundamental problem with um, the way that Marxists view money is that they think of money as just being, um, and, and he says that, Harari, he says it's a social hallucination or it's a, a collective hallucination or it's a socially constructed uh, good that, you know, we all agree that this thing can be money and then this thing becomes money. And if we all agree that, uh, debt can be money, then we all agree that debt can be money. And then he talks about just how uh, powerful and transformative it was to use debt as money. And this is also similar to the work of another Marxist anthropologist who also um, doesn't understand economics, who's David Graeber, who also talks about debt as money and doesn't understand the distinction between the two. And of course, the the, the distinction is, is really very important because uh, – you know, from the market perspective, of course, from the Marxist perspective, um, uh, they're interchangeable because they can both play the role of money. And which, you know, so is a little bit like saying that Bitcoin and gold and um, uh, rye stones in Yap Island are all the same. But, of course, they're not all the same. Different things play the role of money differently. And so debt, while the advantage that debt plays, and this is what I mentioned and what I uh, argue in the fiat standard, that the advantage that debt money or government money has is that government can do um, interspatial settlement uh, quite effectively. You know, it, it controls all the banks within a jurisdiction. And if you pay one bank, that bank has to, you know, I, I pay you, my bank pays you. As long as they're both uh, running their balance sheets under the supervision of the central bank, the central bank can uh, make this happen. And so... For Marxists, you know, there you go. This does the job of money. The central bank does this and then does the job of money. But of course, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the economics is not their strong suit. So they don't think about the consequences of things and they don't think about what is the consequence of having an entity being able to use its own promises as money and forcing others to accept it. And the answer, of course, is uh, catastrophic 
as is testified, uh, as is apparent when you look at any place where any Marxist ever got anywhere near the central bank or the presidency or the finance ministry, the end result, of course, is that when you tell somebody that their own credit is money, they're going to make a lot of that credit and that's going to devalue the money and that's going to destroy the role of money and destroy the market structure of society and cause hyperinflation. Um, so ultimately, they miss the aspect of money being easy. And, and of course, they don't understand the issue of saleability. And that's the, that's the fundamental tenant of um, the, the Austrian understanding of money, as explained by Karl Menger uh, in, in the 19th century. And it's really the, uh, debt is horrible money because debt uh, is you know, your debt is only acceptable to people who trust you. And so if I have a piece of paper from you that says I will pay safe 10 bitcoins, well, that's great, but that's not uh, that's not a present good. I can't exchange it for money today. I can't exchange it for goods today. If I were to, you know, if, if this you're paying me next year 10 bitcoin, uh, if I wanted to cash it out today, if I wanted to exchange it for food today, if I needed liquidity today, it'd have to have a significant discount. And so, uh, they completely miss the point between present goods and future goods. And so that allows for the introduction of this absurd concept of debt being used as money, which is, of course, why uh, it, it's a very popular, uh, of course, it's a very popular idea with government uh, financed economists uh, because that's what governments like. They like the idea of being able to make their own money. Um, but, you know, clearly just the, 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 to go back to your question. Anybody can generate more credit. And if the limit on, you know, generating credit, taking on credit doesn't require sacrifice, um, it's the opposite of sacrifice. It's indulging yourself so that you can spend now at the expense of the future. So um, saving, on the other hand, is sacrificing now in order to reward yourself in the future. So uh, nobody ever got rich by printing debt. There's no record of somebody who didn't save. No countries in the world got rich without saving. Uh, you have to have capital goods and credit doesn't create capital. You have to actually defer consumption. That's really, I mean, it's the basic thing that all creatures understand that if you don't, you know, if you don't work and if you don't uh, defer the consumption, then you won't have it. You know, ants understand that they put food aside. They know if they eat it today, it won't be there tomorrow. And so similarly, you know, if we have to defer the consumption and delay the consumption of uh, consumption goods in order for them to become uh, investment goods or capital goods that we could invest. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these different theories and more about Bitcoin, as well as the current macro environment. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. 
Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with Seyfedeen Amus. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about was the stock-to-flow theory was seemingly debunked in a recent post by Nico Cordero, the chief investment officer and fund manager at Strix Leviathan. And his essay basically just said that across history, there has been no correlation between the stock-to-flow ratio and the price of gold and the price of gold. And I wondered, what did you think of that essay and how does that affect your views on how this theory applies to Bitcoin? No, what he was what he was debunking was the mathematical model built around the stock to flow. So that's not what I'm uh, that's not what is in my book. In my book, I, I introduced the concept and I argue that um, the thing with the highest stock to flow will be money. And I don't think anybody can uh, uh, contend with that on a free market. The, the, you know, gold and silver had the highest stock to flows and they were the only money chosen on the market. Um, I think what he's done is somewhat somebody else uh, then took my model and tried to find a relationship between the stock to flow and the market capitalization. And they seem to be getting significant results uh, when including gold. Um, I think what this guy was saying is that the the, the um, mathematical model for predicting value based on the stock to flow is not accurate. But um I'm 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 a little bit agnostic about it, but I think the the, the model that does not include gold, the model that just um, tries to model Bitcoin's value according to stock flow, is far more interesting without including gold because we don't really have reliable data on gold, um, whereas with Bitcoin we have very reliable data on the stock flow and the market value. Oh, I see. Okay, because I think his was historical. It's it wasn't a projection, but if you're saying that the data wasn't good, maybe that's why um because yeah the <laughs> the historical um uh, you know plotting of the stock to flow ratio of gold versus the price of gold I, I, there was no correlation um but okay okay so if the data is not good uh so one other thing i noticed in your book is that you also emphasize the difficulty adjustment in bitcoin and i wondered you know you talked about how you felt that was quite significant why w- you know how do you see that as being important for bitcoin as money I think really the difficulty adjustment, uh, I, I call it the, uh, the the crowning achievement of Bitcoin. Or the, it was it was the missing ingredient, the magic ingredient that made the uh, soup really work. Um, if you think about it, uh, the technical ingredients of what was needed to make Bitcoin work were all were all already invented before Bitcoin was. And they all really uh, the, the one thing that Bitcoin added was the difficulty adjustment. And what the difficulty adjustment is that it does is a it makes the um, difficulty of mining part of the consensus parameters of the network. So each node is not out there mining on its own and making its own coins. And so the difficulty of the mining is part of the consensus parameters. So they're all mining against the same difficulty. And uh, secondly, it's that it made it. Um, it uh, the difficulty adjustment essentially is what ensures that the Bitcoin supply sticks to the um, schedule that is uh, 
outlined uh, by uh, from the beginning of Bitcoin because it's it's different from every other liquid asset that we've had. And I discussed this in the book with every other liquid asset, as I was mentioning, whether it was gold or copper or silver or oil, if somebody were to use it as a monetary asset, the value would rise significantly. But then if somebody were to, uh, but then it's possible for producers to make more and more of it. And even with gold, the, with gold, they can make the least more, but they can still keep making more. And every year they can keep digging further and they can keep finding more and more. So the higher the value of gold goes up, the more people dig for it and the more people find it. On the other hand, with Bitcoin, it, Bitcoin's um, mining process is more like a, a sports competition where uh, rather than, you know, if more people mine gold, we get more gold. But if more people compete in the 100 meter uh, dash in the Olympics, we don't get more Olympic medals being handed out. <laughs> it just gets harder and harder to win the race. And so effectively, Bitcoin hands out a specified number of medals. And then no matter how many people compete, when more people come and compete, that's not going to re- lead to an increase in the supply. Instead, it's going to make it more difficult to increase the supply. In other words, what has been happening with Bitcoin is that as the number of people trying to mine Bitcoin uh, increases, it's not they, they don't increase the supply. Instead, they increase the security of the network. We bring more hash rate on the network, and that makes the network harder to attack. And for me, this is really the only way that we can understand how Bitcoin has been able to uh, rise in price so astonishingly. I think it's done something like uh, a billion percent in about uh, 11 years or so. And I think you can't really, you know, nothing has ever risen this much for this long. This has just never happened. There's never been an asset that can rise this much for this long. And the reason for me is that no other asset has this kind of uh, technology, the difficulty adjustment, or what people on Twitter like to call the NGU technology for number go up. Because uh, (laughs) instead of, you know, instead of the supply going up, which is how all other monies scale, you know, central banks just keep printing more money. Bitcoin just keeps the supply fixed, and that necessitates that the value goes up. And that's why I think the the value has gone up so drastically over the last uh, 11 years. And another thing that you talk about is the near zero cost to verifying the validity of a transaction. Why is that important for Bitcoin? I think that's really the uh, the glue that holds the security of uh, Bitcoin together. The idea that thousands of uh, and uh, probably tens of thousands of individual Bitcoin nodes exist all over the world. And each one of those nodes is appear to every other one. Not a single one of those nodes has any um, specific privileges that um, privilege it over the others. And so they all have to agree for anything to happen. And they all need to agree on every single block, on every single transaction. Every single Bitcoin node needs to look at every single block and say, all right, this is clear. This is fine by me. Nobody's cheating here. These are all the correct coins going from the right person to the right person. Agreed. And so in my mind, what maintains Bitcoin's security, that transactions continue to work on the one hand, and also what maintains Bitcoin's um, monetary policy, what can assure us that nobody's going to be able to break Bitcoin's NGU technology and figure out a way to make more Bitcoins, is that this is completely decentralized. And there are tens of thousands of nodes out there, and no single node controls uh, Bitcoin. And For that to be the case, it needs to stay cheap for people to run their nodes. And that's why 
in in my mind, really, Bitcoin is the only decentralized digital currency because it's the only one that has these many thousands of nodes that are active and economically active nodes. You know, you can always obviously spin up nodes um, on data centers in order to uh, make large numbers. But Bitcoin has a large number of economically active nodes, and it's uh, so far as we know, it's 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 been impossible for anybody to find a way to basically take over the nodes and introduce changes to the uh, network that are not unanimously agreed upon. And um, as we mentioned earlier, you talk in your book about how the ultimate limited resource is time. And something that fascinated me was you wrote, quote, Bitcoin's immutable monetary supply makes it the best medium to store the value produced from the limited human time, thus making it arguably the best store of value humanity has ever invented. What did you mean by that? Exactly what it says. I think, you know, your time is fixed. Um, you, you can do your best to extend it, but, you know, you, you, you can never buy back the time that uh, was wasted. It, it's, it's, uh, it's gone and um but why is bitcoin the best store of value to to capture that because i mean the way to think about it is let's say you work for one hour and you make a uh, you make ten dollars uh if you'd like to save that uh, money in say dollars you, with every new dollar created your ten dollars are being diluted slightly more because the value of each one of those dollars is going down because it's a smaller percentage of the total dollar supply. And so, uh, you know, you hold ten dollars for ten years, you'll find that their value over time will decline. And the, you know, the the, the way that I look at it when we go back to the issue of the hardness of money, the the, the higher the growth rate of the money the lousier it is at holding on uh, to its value. Gold was the best that we'd ever had because it had a reliably very low growth rate in its uh, annual supply. But now we've figured out something that in 100 years or so is going to have exactly zero growth in its supply. And so you can't make more Bitcoin just like you can't make more time. So if they want something in which to store your scarce time's value in, store it into Bitcoin, and then, okay, well, Bitcoin might oscillate, but in the very long run, at least nobody can make more of it, just like you can't make more of the time that has passed. And so, um, you know, you look at places where people lose their wealth, and, you know, I used to live in Lebanon, and um, the country's just gone through a horrific hyperinflation, and I've seen just how terrible it is. And and, and um, you, when you think about it, you know, people worked for years and years and years and put all that um, wealth into uh, currency or into saving accounts and then to watch it all disappear because somebody managed to print more and more of it is is, is, is absolutely shocking. And Bitcoin really fixes this like no technology has ever fixed it. Yeah. Another quote that you wrote in your book that stuck out at me was, until Bitcoin, no good was ever finite. But actually, through this conversation, I thought, uh, now we have time as well, at least for each of our individual human lives. So maybe that's another reason why it um, is a good way to capture uh, the value of our time. Um, and so you um, did, uh, and, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that I was reading your book, it seemed to me that you were saying that Bitcoin is uniquely positioned to take the place of gold in the digital realm. And on a recent episode of my show, the historian Neil Ferguson said that, well, actually, it was his friend, um, Matthew McLennan, uh, he said at First Eagle, who 
said that Bitcoin currently functions as an option on digital gold. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. I mean, I'm not sure how that is really different um, from saying it is digital gold. It's it's already functioning as digital gold, but I guess, yeah, in a sense, I guess also holding Bitcoin is effectively, uh, you know, you hold it as digital gold. But I think at this early stage of Bitcoin, the way that Bitcoin bootstraps is that as opposed to how Bitcoin would function if it were uh, fully mature, you know, you would expect that Bitcoin at full maturity would be appreciating at a very small percentage every year, maybe 1% or 5% or so on. If Bitcoin was the only money and the money supply was fixed, then it would only appreciate compared to goods uh, based on how much those goods uh, supply increases. So when we have economic growth, uh, Bitcoin appreciates uh, slightly. In, effectively, at this early stage of Bitcoin's operation, with Bitcoin at about 0.1%, uh, of the global money supply, you know, holding it and hoping that it becomes 0.2% involves a 100% roughly return on your uh, holdings. And so even though it doesn't pay cash dividends, it is to an extent, it's uh, it's a little bit like a high growth stock uh, or like a high risk investment. Um, and I think uh, my, my my good friend Pierre Rochard coined the term. It's Bitcoin is a growth currency, which is a new thing that has never been there. So, you know, there's um, it, it's a category that usually exists for stocks. You will buy a growth stock because you think this is a small company that has potential for growing significantly, but it doesn't exist for currencies. People buy currencies not for growth, but Bitcoin is a growth currency in that you know you hold it, and uh, even though it doesn't offer returns. Just its own appreciation can end up doing uh, much better than uh, returns from uh, actual companies. So um, I think, yeah, in a sense, yeah, betting on Bitcoin right now is betting on it increasing in its uh, value over time and becoming more of a digital gold. And so here we are in this crazy macro environment now due to the coronavirus pandemic and quantitative easing and low interest rates, sometimes negative interest rates. How do you imagine all of this will affect Bitcoin? Um, I, it, you know, astonishingly, uh, Bitcoin, well, maybe not so much astonishing, but Bitcoin has done pretty well over the last uh, uh, eight months, really. Um, you know, you think about 2020, uh, it's uh, it's been a hell of a year for everybody all over the world um, with the coronavirus uh, lockdowns and uh, all of that uh, economic disruption. I think what was really incredible, and um, you know, I'd I'd mentioned this uh, previously in, in my website. You can find some research reports I'd written about uh, that I, that I used to write for subscribers, and you can buy them. One of them regards how Bitcoin would perform in a financial crisis, and I. In that, I thought, you know, there are two scenarios, um, in, and it's hard to be able to tell whether Bitcoin is matured enough for it to act as a store of value, as a safe haven in a crisis, that you'd see things uh, get liquidated and Bitcoin doesn't get liquidated. So we didn't quite see this happen this time in that when um, when, when when the big sell-off was happening in the credit uh, markets and in the stock market in uh, mid-March, Bitcoin also sold off. So it, it was a risk on asset. However, um, that was expected. Uh, we, we saw, you know, I, I thought I think it's going to be a while before we see it uh, not sell off. But I think the interesting thing is that uh, it bounced back or the, or, or the really interesting thing was how quick it would take for it to bounce back. And um, 
you know, in, in, in as I say in that paper, effectively, you could say that the first, it, it, for the first few financial crises, Bitcoin doesn't have to act as a safe haven. It just has it, it has to take the beating and then come out of the beating uh, not dead, basically. <laughs> and the fact that it takes the beating and comes out not dead is going to be for the first couple of times is going to be like a championship win, because eventually people will think, well, you know, uh, even through the worst beating, this thing still comes out uh, with a pulse on the other side. That opens people's eyes. So I think it, um, I was astonished at how quick Bitcoin's recovery was. Uh, really took me by surprise. I thought we'd, I thought we'd witness a longer, deeper, more painful crash. Uh, but it was, um, it was astonishingly quick. And what's amazing about it is that, um, you know, the, the the central bank had to step in in order to rescue capital and credit markets and so on. Uh, Bitcoin and they stepped in by printing enormous amounts of uh, money, effectively by um, engaging in quantitative easing, um, effectively converting um, long maturity financial assets into short maturity financial assets in order to improve the liquidity situation of these financial institutions. So, you know, making more maturity, more liquidity available, making more money supply. And Bitcoin, you know, the, the 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 contrast with Bitcoin, which was going through its having around the same time, where you know, not not through the command of anybody, not like anybody could do anything about it. Bitcoin was going to respond in the exact opposite way. We're going to drop by half all the number of uh, new coins that we produce, and it's, you know, see, both of them seem to work. Uh, you know, the, the 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 reduction in the new supply of bitcoins. Clearly uh, reduced the new selling onto the market, so probably has helped um, keep the price up or prevent it from dropping further. Um, and you know, with the central bank's uh, quantitative easing and helicopter money policy, and uh, giving everybody checks, seems to have uh, done the same for the stock market. Now, let's uh, wait and see for the long run effects of um, the two approaches you know the, the short term fix of let's just print money at the expense of the future versus the uh, you know the, the bitcoin we stick to what we were doing anyway well not like we have a choice but you know bitcoin just proceeds and uh, fewer coins are out there and this is just another test of the um, of the austrian contention that the total supply of money doesn't matter and do you have any theory about why? Because what? Ha- so after March, after Black Thursday, you're right. So there was the dip, and then it sort of just bounced back to where it was. But then in the last few weeks, we've seen it um, tick upward again. Do you have a theory about why that happened? I think uh, I don't have theories on uh, short-term price fluctuations, but I think you know the the, the long-term trend is just uh, NGU technology is <laughs> um, <laughs> it, going to play out. You know we. For the past four years, we had 1,800 new Bitcoins being sold on the market at an average price of, say, I can't remember what it was exactly over the last four years, but I think it was about seven or $8,000 over the past four years, over the past halving period. So 1,800 coins at around $7,000 each. So that's around $10 million a day of coins or something like that. Um, roughly 10 to $15 million, I think, was the value of coins that was being uh, produced every day over the last four years. Now we have half as many Bitcoins. So if the price stays the same, we have half the amount of new selling coming onto the market. So 
Um, it's it's shocking that this is controversial in, in the Bitcoin space because you know um, people uh, people have learned so much bad economics that uh, uh, th- th- this sounds controversial. But yeah, four years of dropping eighteen hundred coins versus four years of dropping nine hundred coins a day is likely only to be resolved one way, which is that the average price in the next four years is going to be higher than the average price in the previous four years. Of course, this assumes that demand for Bitcoin does not tank. It's it's quite possible that demand tanks, but um, you know, demand needs to drop by half in order for the price to stay the same. And so as long as demand doesn't drop by half for Bitcoin every four years, then NGU technology works. <laughs> and um, in general, like when you're looking at Bitcoin and assessing it and trying to figure out where it's going, are there any particular metrics that you like to watch? I think really there are only, well, not only, but the, the two most important metrics, uh, well, I'll add a third, three. Uh, the first one, obviously, is the price. And a lot of people like to pretend, you know, we're here for the tech and that this is about technology. The tech is the price. That's it. That this is Bitcoin does one thing, and it's uh, the the price itself. Really, the you know, I mean, I think the the way that Bitcoin uh, grows and the way that Bitcoin scales is through appreciation. That's just how the system works. And I think um, you know people like to kind of virtue signal that you know we're not in it for the money; we're in it for the tech. The, the, if you think the tech is anything other than the money, then I don't think you're getting the tech. You know, this isn't, uh, as I argue in my book, you know, blockchain is, is is a spectacularly useless technology for pretty much everything, uh, except if you want to get Bitcoin to work. And, and um, the, the, the higher the price goes, the larger the value of cash balance is held in Bitcoin, the larger the opportunities for trade between people who both hold Bitcoin. And so... Uh, the, the the higher the price, the more Bitcoin succeeds, the more secure the network. So uh, make no mistake about it. Price is the most important metric. The second metric for me is uh, the number of nodes, which we mentioned earlier. Um, if the cost of running a Bitcoin node rises significantly, then you get a very big reduction in the number of nodes. I would be very worried. I would I would advise investors in this case. If I'm not an investment advisor, but if I were, I'd tell people to, you know, be careful because um, if Bitcoin operates on 100 computers, then it can be um, pretty straightforward to compromise it. Well, maybe not enough straightforward, but it would be much harder to compromise it than it is right now. And I would uh, be far less uh, secure about uh, the amount of money that I have in it. And that's, um, and then the third one, would be uh, transaction fees, um, Bitcoin transaction fees, which is always interesting to follow because it gives us a good indication about demand for transactions and how many transactions are taking place. And I think in the long run, um, I think I think Bitcoin transaction fees are likely to rise a lot. And I think you know people uh, need to prepare psychologically for the fact that Bitcoin transactions, you know, they're going to be. The monetary equivalent of chartering a, uh, uh, you know, a, a charter a cargo ship. It's not <laughs> something you and I do. Uh, we, you know, I don't know how to char- charter a cargo ship, but uh, uh, all my clothes and my electronics and uh, my furniture has been on cargo ships at some point. And so it, it, it's the underlying um, infrastructure of a financial system, I think, the Bitcoin blockchain. So it, it, it's quite possible that uh, transaction fees will continue to rise. 
And where do you think Bitcoin's future is going? And when I say that, I mean, including how does it look with the current system of central banks? Um, how do you see people transacting with Bitcoin? And um, one other thing I wanted to ask about was you did say at one point that you thought central banks may buy Bitcoin as, as a reserve currency. And I was curious to hear how you thought that would go down. I mean, I mentioned it in the book as a possibility, but I'm, um, you know, with time, I'm less and less uh, convinced that this could happen. I think it, it does make sense on an intuitive sense, uh, in an intuitive way that you think, well, if you're a central bank and you want to settle payments with other central banks, then uh, you can use Bitcoin and then you don't have to go through other central banks. There is an element to that, but I think. You know, we've had gold for the past 50 years and central banks still have been using the dollar. I think there are the um, the economies of scale for central banks and the network effects that uh, they all settle with one another for dollars and they all use the same system. So they all have to be on it. And then it just makes sense to be on it. Plus, of course, you know, the geopolitical aspect of um, the U.S.'s geopolitical weight also um, helps make people's mind up about wanting to be part of that system. In general, I think the, the 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 main reason I would say that I don't see central banks adopting Bitcoin is because it is completely against their mental model of the world. I, I, I would not be surprised if central banks are the absolute last people in the world to get Bitcoin. In fact, it might well be the case that, you know, 100 years from now, if Bitcoin takes over the world, and we look at adoption by profession, <laughs> if somebody collects data on it, I think we'll find that central bankers were the absolute last people to get uh, Bitcoin because, you know, it's uh, it's it's really hard for the central banker whose entire job is predicated on the premise that government and the monopoly entity is needed uh, at, in order to make money work. It's very hard for them to take seriously the concept that actually the same thing that you do doesn't need you to be done. It can be done with code. You know, it's 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 it's, it's like the uh, taxi commission is coming to terms with Uber. Um, they'll be the last to install the Uber apps and the people in the taxi and limousine commission in New York City. Um, but you know, um, Uber is still. Uh, I I think that's there's a beautiful poetry uh, to it. I think it's 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 great that the people who benefit the most from the current system and who are most heavily invested in the current system are also intellectually handicapped at understanding Bitcoin, which I think is wonderful because it uh, it, it gives all the rest of us the chance to get a head start on them. And um, I think it's also, you know, the, the flip side of it is that people in places like Lebanon and Venezuela and Zimbabwe are, um, um, you know, th their mental models of watching their national currency implode in front of them will uh, put them in a much better place uh, to be able to comprehend uh, Bitcoin's value proposition over the coming uh, years and decades as it continues to grow. And so this is uh, <laughs> a little bit off topic because we've only been talking about Bitcoin, but I did want to ask your opinion of something like Ethereum. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I generally think uh, all the other digital currencies don't uh, really compete with Bitcoin and are in, in, in no way similar to Bitcoin. I think uh, their real competition is, uh, if I'm being generous, I'll say Amazon uh, Web Services and uh, these kinds of uh, platforms. Um, and I think in, in that sense, you know, the, the notion of distributed cloud, uh, the notion of distributed blockchain uh, computing for all kinds of other applications, I've 
spent the last, uh, what is it now, four, five years um, uh, basically waiting for somebody to show me a working application that needs blockchain or somebody show me somebody who paid a dime of, uh, who made a, cons- a dime of revenue um, selling blockchain services. So I think there's no scope for any kind of um, uses for blockchain technology other than creating a digital cash. And I think the only real value proposition for a digital cash like Bitcoin is the fact that nobody controls it, the fact that it is immutable, the fact that uh, we can be very sure of the monetary policy. And um, I think the uh, on the other hand, the... Um, the, you know, and Bitcoin won this after many, many years of many people trying and doing a lot of things to try and change things about Bitcoin and failing miserably at changing it. So on the other hand, we've seen with all the other coins, um, you know, uh, it, it's quite trivial for them to organize a hard fork. And that makes them more like a private company. So essentially, you're uh, going with the currency issued by a private company and you're you're having to trust you're having to place trust in a small team of people. There, there are several single points of failure for uh, other digital currencies other than Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, no, no, nobody has the monetary policy guarantee. And so beyond that, to be perfectly honest, everything else, all the other buzzwords in the space are, you know, at best interesting high school projects, but uh, definitely not something that I think uh, serious investors should be. Uh, there are no working prototypes for anything that has been uh, working. You know, and I think Ethereum is the uh, most amazingly guilty of this. Um, it's been what now five, six years of uh, shifting from one uh, buzzword train to another. So I'm, um, I'm I'm not quite optimistic that things will be different. And incidentally, just today on Twitter, um, people have been people have spent about the, the last day trying to find out how many um, tokens of Ethereum there are out there. And apparently nobody can answer that question. Um, nobody runs a node. Nobody has a code for it. They have never even made a code for it. So, um, yeah. Count me firmly in the camp of the skeptics when it comes to all other currencies. <laughs> all right. Well, because this show really should be about Bitcoin, why don't we end on a Bitcoin note? Do you want to make any predictions for what you think will happen in the next year in Bitcoin? I'd say every 10 minutes we're going to get a new block. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cop out. That's a cop out, but I'll let you have it. <laughs> All right. It's the only it's the only <laughs> prediction I make on Bitcoin. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it was a good one. I'm sure it will bear out. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people learn more about you and your work? So I'm uh, now um, independent. I work on uh, my own website, safedean.com. I've uh, quit my university job and I teach um, online courses in Austrian economics on my website, and I publish my own research directly to my readers. And I'm, uh, I publish excerpts of uh, my forthcoming books as well, where you can subscribe or uh, buy early drafts. Um, all of it is on safedean.com. Uh, you can find plenty of courses and papers. And soon we're uh, building a new uh, uh, forum and uh, student uh, area for discussion. Uh, so yeah, safedean.com, as well as Twitter, of course. I'm very active on Twitter, also at safedean. Thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Safedine and the Bitcoin standard, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.